What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. Bittersweet day today. This is the last show, the last episode of the season. What a great season it's been. If you haven't checked out previous episodes from this season, go do it. But today, we got Eric Krasno, one of my favorite guitar players since I was a teenager. When I was a teenager, I saw him play with Soul Live, with Lettuce. I've seen him play with Tedeschi Trucks Band. He is one of those guitar players that can span all genres. R&B, funk, soul, pop, jazz, so many different things. I've seen him play in a lot of different settings, and it's super inspiring. Krasno is also one of the kings of guitar in the jam scene. I mean, come on. This cat can jam. He gets it. He gets it. Look, if you're somebody who's trying to jam, trying to know how to prepare for a jam session, this is one of those things. Some people are like, how do you jam? How do you know what to do when you go to a jam session? How do you decide what to do? How do you like how can you prepare for that? I actually have thought a lot about this, and I made a video lesson on this in my guitar course, how to prepare for jam sessions. It might seem like a kind of counterintuitive thing of like, oh, like you should just show up and play. But there actually is ways that you can set yourself up for success going into jams, jam sessions, open mics, whatever, all that kind of stuff. If you're interested in that, if you're interested in just getting better at the guitar, funk, R&B, soul, all that stuff, check out my guitar course, Corey Wong Guitar Course. It's over five and a half hours of videos. I've been adding to it for the last year. I've even got some more stuff coming up. Before I raise the price on this thing, because it's just a one-time, one price, no subscription thing, you just get access to it forever. And I continue to add lessons onto it. And guess what? You just get them for free once you've bought in. And the price is just going to keep going up because that whole inflation thing everybody's talking about, I don't know. Stuff's just going up in price. I don't know. My, uh, my, my, my like yearly rate on that website to host it is going up. So, I, you know, whatever. It is what it is. Check it out. And without further ado, let's get into it. Eric Krasno. Hey, you guys know about DistroKid yet? If you are an artist, musician, somebody who's trying to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, all of those things, DistroKid is a digital distributor that can get your music on all of those platforms. It's the easiest, fastest way to do so, with accounts even just starting at $19.99 a year per artist. So for me, I have several albums out. I just pay one amount for the year. For all the Corey Wong albums, I just pay one amount, and DistroKid takes 0% royalty. 100% of the royalties come straight to me. Or you use their Teams feature where you can dedicate a certain percentage to one member of your band, a certain percentage to the other, or one of your collaborators. I do this sort of thing. It works amazing. DistroKid is who I use for my albums, and it has worked great for me. The stuff gets up there fast. They have a smart ISRC thing. I don't have to worry about coming up with my own codes, registering a lot of the stuff. They just have that. And they also have these really cool design tools. If you are not very design savvy, they'll help you come up with assets for social media and other things to help promote your album. And if you want to use them, you can use my VIP code. Just go distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong and you get 30% off. How about that? Check them out, DistroKid. All right, let's hit this episode. Kraz, what's happening, bro? How you doing, man? I'm good. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. You at your studio in LA there? I am. I am up in Pasadena. Ooh, nice. I didn't know you were in Pasadena. 
Yeah, it's been nice. I've been here since kind of a couple months into the pandemic. My wife and I moved up here. I found a house that had a studio built in the back already. So it was, uh, and it had all the things that my wife wanted in terms of the house. So we lucked out. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Pasadena's dope. I know a lot of people think it's too far, but it's actually, I, I really dig it there. Yeah, I love it. And I like that it's a little tucked away and a little quieter. My neighborhood's quiet. I can hike up into the hills from here. And, you know, and it's it actually isn't that far. I mean, you know, I'm not out and about every night uh, yeah. like I once was either. So, but getting around <laughs> isn't too bad. Nice. Dude, I heard that some of this new stuff that you and Stanton and uh, and other and Eric Finland have been doing. Yeah, yeah, it's been really fun playing with those guys, man. It's just uh, it's a blast every night, and we we made the record, but it got better and better as we toured it. And now, you know, you know that feeling when you're like, oh, let's make it the record again. <laughs> you yeah, know? Uh, but it's because it just started gelling as a band as we did this last tour. It really feels like a like a unique thing now. Well, what's really interesting I've noticed about your career is that you've had so many different projects. Your voice obviously shines through and is a as a through line with all of it, but you know, everything from Soul Live, Lettuce, Kraz, this stuff, like all the all the different things that you've done as kind of your projects. It's been really interesting and fun to see you explore different creative spaces. And I'm wondering like what has sparked that and have you felt like you've had an anchor other than you as your own, I mean, like, I know, like, if you were to scroll through, like, back, if you were to go to a record store back in the day, you'd have to go all over the place to find the Krasno yeah. projects. But do you feel like there is something for yourself that you're able to anchor to? You know, that's a good question. I think it's been a blessing and a curse to be so, you know, curious. I'm just a musically curious person. I want to try different things, which is been great in terms of being a producer because a lot of people yeah. don't know that I've produced a lot of records that have been in all these different genres. But yeah. then I've also, you know, made records. And I think there is, I'm starting to figure out a through line in terms of like my solo records are starting to become more cohesive in terms of like pulling from all these different influences, but also having their own sound. You know, I think that's like a evolution that I'm always kind of going through. But, um, you know, it's funny because I listen back to old records and certain ones, you know, I have a new appreciation for them, like as of recent. And that kind of sparked wanting to do an organ trio again with Stanton. Cause I was kind of like, oh man, let me get another stab at doing that. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Like, cause you listen to someone's old records. Oh, I wish I did that. And if only I'd done that. And you know, they're very, the la the records I've made in the past two years have been very different. Like I did a solo record, that I spent a lot of time during COVID, yeah. like writing the songs and you know how that goes and producing yeah. it mostly, you know, producing just me and Otis McDonald doing every, all the instrumentation ourselves. I'm writing all the lyrics, doing all the vocals. Um, and then I did a project called King Canyon with also with Otis that was really kind of, you know, a little more off the top of the head where it was like, okay, let's just make some really vibey, surfy, yeah. tremolo, reverb sounds and that one was really effortless and then this one was like let's just put a band in a room yeah and hit record um and we had a concept you know stanton and i had wanted to make a record and it was just kind of out of convenience that we we're like let's do like a concept record where we can kind of do our own 
stylistic kind of organ trio versions of of pop songs, essentially, which is a lot like what they used to do in the 60s and 70s with those yeah. Lonnie Smith, Grant Green bands. So we just decided to focus on females in, in music. And we came up with the title, Book of Queens, started sending songs back and forth, did a lot of virtual rehearsing because we're, we were super busy and yeah. booked a gig at Leave on Helm Studio. And we were like, hey, let's just record in that room, set up just like we did for the gig set up the mics, hit record, and do it like we used to. You know what I mean? Like just a band, a band in a room. Yeah. The studio videos look really cool too. Thanks, man. I mean, that was kind of the magic of that project was it just was easy, you know? I mean, I, I mean, we had did a lot of prep to get up, to get it together, but just being in that room and recording, we just did a couple takes and like the, the video recordings were actually after we cut the album. We cut the album just in a couple days. Yeah. And then the last day we were like, let's just get some video, a few of the songs, which ended up being re- valuable in the end. So we got to use it. Totally. Um, in a lot of different ways. Dude. And Branford, you got Branford on the yeah. record. <laughs> yeah, man, that was a crazy one because it was like again, it was the same with this this project. Everything just happened fast. Like I love Stanton for that because he, you know, is just one of those guys. Oh, let's do that, and he'll make it. And so we, when he, when I said, oh man, it'd be cool to get Branford on Fever, and I just called him like while I was on a Zoom call with Stanton, pretty much, and yeah. I was like, hey man, would you want to do this? He was like, hell yeah, and then he just did it like that day or the next day. Amazing, and a lot of this. A lot of the people, you know, a lot of the things that happened on this record happened like that. It's like we had the idea, we just went, we went for it, and um, I love that about this. In term, in, in the same thing with like putting it out, booking the tour, getting the label. It all happened within a very short period of time, you know, comparatively to other projects yeah. that I'll be sitting on for years. You being like, oh, we're gonna put this out, you know, as soon as we find the right this and the right that, you know, yeah. But uh, so, so I, I, it, but yeah, getting Bram, I mean, that was what an honor, yeah, to have him on our record, man. It's so cool. I, w- I was thinking before we started, when, when uh, we got you to, to come to the podcast, I was thinking, okay, of all the guitar players that are out there right now, you are definitely like the organ trio cat now. And pr- like, you've kind of cemented <laughs> yourself as that because, you know, the organ trio with guitar, like guitar, organ, and drums thing has existed for a long time. And there's a lot of versions of that. Grant Green, Benson, and and several, a lot of, whatever, I could go on. But in the modern era, I'm thinking of a lot of my favorite music that I've seen you play. Like I grew up listening to Soul Live. I, I was at a Soul Live gig when I was 17 years old at the Fine Line in Minneapolis. You know, like I've seen wow, yeah. Soul Live, seen seen you with the E3 project, sat in with you guys, you know, at the Blue Note and other places and, you know, love that group. And now this, is there something about the B3 trio that is just like, is is a peak of your curiosity? And then, well, I'll just leave it there. And then I, I do have a couple follow-ups. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And the funny thing is that the history there, like when I met the Soul Live guys, it wasn't even in my world. Like I was so into, at that time, I really wanted to, be a producer. Sure. Um, and I was like kind of a multi, I considered myself a multi-instrumental. Like I got, I would go in this, I had a little studio and, um, I wanted to, you know, produce artists. That was kind of, and I, I was playing with lettuce, but, and lettuce was not really a touring act. It was like, we just got together and played yeah. shows. And, uh, when I met the, the, the Evans brothers, they were really serious about 
they had the concept, they had the whole thing, you know, the suits, the the name, the yeah. van. I kind of <laughs> jumped in to this thing, you know, and then I was like, okay, I got to learn what this really is, you know, because I sat in with them. Their first couple gigs, they had a vibes player. Really? They only did like two, three gigs with that cat. Yeah. I sat in on like the first gig. I think they maybe did one gig and I was in town in Boston. I sat in. And I used to play a strat. I was a strat dude. So I, I and uh, um, I've sat in with them, and they were like, "Oh man, that was killing." And then a couple of days later, they were like, "Well, the vibes player, he got a gig like in the pit orchestra at Broadway or something, and we want, you know, would you be down to come jam with us?" So I drove out to Massachusetts from, I mean, to I'm sorry to upstate to Woodstock area from Boston. I was in Boston yeah. at the time, and I bought a plywood. $50 hollow, semi-hollow guitar at a pawn shop. <laughs> I was not joking. It was called a Sebring. It was like a Swedish brand or something. I, I mean, it literally, I was like, I, I was like, I got to have a, a, a semi-hollow. It's an organ trio, you know? Yeah. And uh, I actually, initially I brought my bass too. Cause they were, I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll play bass. Yeah. Not realizing when I got there, the greatest bass player of all time is just half of Neil Evans, you know? <laughs> and uh, so we, we started, you know, we started playing and I was like, just hid my bass. I was like, I don't need yeah. to play bass in this band. And that first day we got together, we initially were getting together to jam, but, you know, Alan Evans has always been a great engineer and always has a studio kind of thing. Yeah. He had an 8-at and a Mackie in his garage. We recorded that day our jam. And I had a couple tunes, they had a couple tunes, and that was our first EP called Get Down, was made that day. Wow. That very first day that I, that I, that I was there. And um, they, you know, already had booked a bunch of gigs. So they had been around in this band. They had had a band called Moon Boot Lover that was really popular in the Northeast. Okay. And they had toured since they were kids. I mean, Neil was like 13 or 14 when they started touring. So they, it turns out, after it had went well for a few hours, they were like, well, it turns out we have like a whole tour book. Do you yeah. want to like be in this band? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the great. I mean, three guys, you got, they are, you already have a van. I know I've mentioned that already, yeah. but I was like, you guys have a van? I'm in, you know, <laughs> which is so funny looking back on it. But, um, so I started studying that music from that point because I did not, I mean, I loved that music, but I didn't know it. I sure. wasn't like a huge Grant Green guy. I wasn't a huge Lonnie Smith guy. And, you know, they were adding a lot to it. it yeah. Like, you know, they had tunes that were like Neil Evans is such a great composer. Yeah. And he was like, and he was like, he had such an incredible feel. He'd been making, they'd been making hip hop for a decade already, you know, and had groups with MCs. So this this amazing combination of like kind of complex chordal but really beautiful melodies and hip hop together it, it just was like oh man I want I, I just wanted to do that. I just wanted to be around it. Yeah. And then it evolved to the point where I could start playing it and start adding my flavor and my songwriting became better just from like hanging out with them, you know, and um it was a huge like to me, I wasn't even considering being like a guitarist in that way at that time. So that pushed me to become a guitarist, kind of. I mean, I had been playing a lot, but at that point, it wasn't like, oh, I couldn't, I ne definitely didn't imagine myself being on like Blue Note Records, yeah, you know, or like anything like that. But, you know, I, I was always came from like a blues perspective and sure. funk. I mean, I was like, as, as I'm sure, you know, you can relate to, it's like, 
I was listening to James Brown, but also like Tower of Power, but also like B.B. King and then Hendrix, you know, obviously yeah. no one can be a guitarist without that. So at first I, I definitely leaned into like the, the like ho- semi hollow kind of clean thing. Mm-hmm. And then as the band evolved, I like started to build, you know, the pedal board got bigger and I started getting more into like different sounds and incorporating some of that, like, more funk and rock and roll yeah. thing into it. Yeah, that's cool, man. I mean, the the organ trio thing is a specific sound and you've you've been a huge part of like the modern approach on guitar. And it's so fun to see the way that you do it. Weaving from rhythm to lead and kind of doing both back and forth. It's it's really cool. And the, the other thing about playing with the organ trio, I guess, which was your initial <laughs> question that I veered off of is that, it's such a cool, I mean, for three people, it just, it, it can be so big, you yeah. know? And I missed, I guess what happened was I've tried so many different things and I always come back to it. Not that it's what I have to do, but it sure. is kind of like a comfy, warm blanket of like, you know, when you also just as an improviser and as a soloist, as a playing guitar, having that, that organ just fills so much space behind you. And it's such a great support yeah. underneath when you want to improvise, you know? Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, just playing with a trio, like guitar, bass, and drums, sometimes I have a hard time, like there's not as much space being filled. I sometimes feel like I need to play more. I'm sometimes confused on like, is there enough context for the listener in the way that I'm playing this melody? Does it work? Does it feel empty? But the the B3 trio kind of solves some of that issue. It totally does. In fact, I was just watching, I played a New Year's Eve gig as a trio with bass and, and drums. And I was just watching some of the video because we're going to cut up some of the video. And it felt so empty at times. And yeah. I was playing too much. I was just <laughs> playing way too much, man. I was like, oh, man. And I was like, the next time we do it, it was like a Jimmy, we were doing like a Jimi Hendrix set. Oh, yeah. And uh, which was super fun. And it seems right for that to be trio, you know, but yeah. It, yeah, I was playing way too much without that <laughs> that layer underneath, you know? Yeah. Man, Tuesday Night Squad, that was like the first hard, that was one of the first really hard tunes for me in high school where I was like, oh man, what is this line? I got to learn this. Like, oh, what do you mean this isn't pentatonic? Or like, what do you mean this? You know, it's right. it, it was like accessible enough for me to hear, but also hard enough. And like, your, your playing is so That fluid. is a hard it's, tune. Yeah. And also, I've heard a lot of people do it, and no one has ever done it right, including me, probably. In what way? You know? what, what do they get so, wrong? <laughs> well, th- it's really that da 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 It's really just the fourths kind of descending down. Sure. And people always think it's like a chord, you know? Oh. And it might, and I don't know what Neil's doing, but then also a lot of those other lines are really weird. Yeah. All that stuff is Neil. It's a Neil wrote that one, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I would always add little things. You could tell what I've at what I add because sure. what I add is generally pentatonic. <laughs> like you're, if you hear like like something like that, it's like oh, Kraz did that, yeah. you know. But uh, you know, but all that really complex. And you can hear the songs where I'm trying to do that, mm. you know, like where I'm trying to like, well, check out what I got, you know, Neil. But uh, him and Alan were just such such great writers, man. I mean, Neil Shahid and 
all those cool chord progressions. But I remember when he was working out Tuesday Night Squad at like sound checks, and I was like scared to actually learn it because that's how that's how it would work is like he'd start coming up with something at soundcheck because to have his whole rig you know he didn't usually have that like at home yeah you know what i mean how you know you know how that is like, yeah. it's like drummers it's like you can't always work out what you're doing so soundcheck he'd start working to do 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 and i'd start hearing it come together i'd be like oh damn this is gonna be a beast you know yeah and uh same with one and seven i remember mm. working out one and seven and he and you could tell on that one too, like the ones that are. I was like, what if, what if we add one little pentatonic yeah, yeah. thing in there, you know? <laughs> and um, so and uh, and a lot of the songs evolved. Like we did lot, uh, you know, live. It would change so much over the years because we would never want to, you know. We'd always we'd get bored with things. Yeah. And then I'd come back to the original recording. I'd be like, oh damn, that's so different from how <laughs> I'm used to it, you know? Yeah. Did you study a lot of jazz? I mean, you 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 grew up like you're saying playing blues and funk and listening to James Brown and the Hendrix stuff, but I feel like there is, you know, there's more than just a a a, a dash of salt in in the jazz vocabulary of yours. Like there's there's more to it. What 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 got you into that yeah. vocabulary? Well, I I always loved it. You know, like my dad was a huge Oscar Peterson, like Art Tatum guy. My dad played piano, not professionally, but um, I listened to it, but it was really in college. So I went to Berkeley for one semester. That's where I met the lettuce guys. Okay. And then I ended up transferring to a school, a liberal arts college called Hampshire College. And the reason I went there pretty much was because Youssef Latif was, was on staff there. Yeah. Um, the great saxophone player, flute player, um, composer for people that don't know. And he also, uh, you know, he played with Dizzy Gillespie back in the day. He was, um, had traveled all over the world and incorporated a lot of different kind of sounds into jazz. He didn't like calling it jazz, but, um, you know, a lot of East, he had a record called Eastern Sounds, which was like a huge, uh, record for so many people, uh, for so many horn players and, really just musicians in general. And he then he also had a lot of electric kind of funked out, fuzzed out stuff in the 70s that he made. Just a giant in music. Yeah. And he was uh he was on staff there and I and uh, I got to hang and study with him for basically my whole time there. Um and he was such a great teacher because it wasn't really about specifically learning scales and things like that. We, we had an improv class that a composition class and an improv class, and they would let me get credits by taking it every semester because it never changed, you know, it would all, it would always change. So, uh, the improv class, he, he would start letting me, I did it on guitar for a while and he let me play bass in the class, piano in the class. He was really you know, pushing me to explore different instruments. He would have me write, write, compose a lot of new material for the class that then we'd use, you know, to improvise with. And the idea was you'd have it kind of come up with a chord progression and a head, and then everyone in the class would like improvise on these, yeah. these changes, but then you'd come back to the head and there'd be up to like 20 people in the class sometimes. So the whole, we, we, it was like a three hour thing. And sometimes we'd play like four songs, you know? Yeah. But, uh, Anyway, just hanging with him was so huge. Just kind of like absorbing yeah. so much music from him. And then he also had office hours after that class, and I'd always make sure I'd never had a class then so I could just hang out with him yeah, um, and hear stories about just being in that scene. And yeah. you know, he loved telling us about 
the hangs of the, yes, of uh, like yeah. the epic <laughs> hangs of all time. Yeah. Like Coltrane stories and Dizzy stories. And it was such Wild. a huge, huge part of my everything, you know? And then when Soul Live started, you know, he heard, I got, came and saw us and That's cool. he, uh, my, my final like recital for college was with Soul Live. It was, and, um, and, uh, you know, he was there and wow. and hung and was like, really loved the band. We never got to, we planned to record together and then it never actually happened. Unfortunately, he passed away, but, mm. um, but we got to do some of his songs um, and dedicate, we have an album called Spark. That's kind of a dedication to him and, and Melvin Sparks where we cover, cover one of his songs. Yeah. But uh, that was a huge, huge thing for me. So I guess like my jazzisms was really mostly from him. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit from from my time at Berkeley. Sure. Too. Did you do a summer program at Berkeley? Did you do one of those? I did. Okay. I let did me get the five week. <laughs> the five yeah. week I've heard legend of, and I want to get this straight yeah. because there's been several insane musicians of your era that, and by the way, you're a handful of years older than me. But uh, yeah, yeah, there. Like so many people did the five week program, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I because I James Valentine tried to tell me about the epicness of the five week program at this time that it was like James from and some of the other Maroon Five guys, you, yep, a couple of the Lettuce Cats, there was yep. um, Jared Sharp from the SNL band, John Mayer, yep. and yep. I'm blanking on a handful of others, but I, I remember him describing to me who was all in this Berkeley five week program and just thinking, yeah. good God, what, what was going on there? Yeah, it was, it's so funny to think about that now because I can actually put myself there. Like, you know, you have certain memories where it's like, it's super faded. Yeah. Like that, <laughs> the memory of being there is still pretty vivid. Really? You know what I mean? And it's so funny to think about now, uh, like all those people that are like, you know, in these huge bands and, you know, just like crushing it. And, you know, and I still run into them all the time. They're still the same people. Yeah. You know, I still work on The funny thing is that the people that I met that summer are still the people I work with the most, which is so, Wild. such a trip. Yeah. That when I was 16, I met the collaborators that I'm still working with. Wow. You know, I mean, I met Lettuce Formed at the five week. It was yeah. me, Schmeens, Adam Smirnoff, Deitch. Eric Coombs, Ryan Zoidis. That was the core lettuce guys, you know, and we just wanted to sit in a room and jam and we would take over the like little ensemble rooms. Actually, the funny thing is we generally would play in the drum room because it was the only one that was never checked out. Yeah. <laughs> so we would like go in the, in the drum. Imagine like seven of us in the drum room, like standing on the amps, like, yeah. in the, like hovering over the cymbals. And we would try to get in the ensemble rooms to practice. And we would be in there all night. Wow. You know, I mean, these are, we're 16 years old. I had no one from my hometown really that was as focused on music as I was. So I, I went there and I met these guys who were all my age and generally better than me and it, but also into the same music, you know, and at that point, you know, it's pre-internet, pre-Spotify, obviously. So we all had our CD books. Remember, yeah. I don't know if you were in the era of the case oh, yeah. logic book and you would carry it everywhere you went. Oh yeah. Cause it was all about going into someone's room and being like, Oh, but have you heard this? Oh no, but yep. have you heard that? Yeah. And I remember 
the one thing that we could all, not one thing, there's a lot of things, but the one thing that was like the holy grail, it was thrust. The Herbie Ooh, Hancock yeah, the Herbie. thrust. We pull, you'd pull that out with like just barely holding the edges so you didn't fuck up the CD <laughs> and lay it on there. <laughs> and uh, it was, man, I remember just like all of us bringing different CDs to the thing. It was like Zoidus brought Tower of Power. Yeah. Um, and uh, Deitch had Earth, Wind, and Fire. Live gratitude, yeah, you know, and E Jesus was bringing like West Coast hip hop stuff, yeah, to the table, and I was kind of the one dude who was like aware of like the jam world, which sure. it was very different than it was like Grateful Dead and Fish. That was there wasn't much else, sure. And I remember trying to describe to them because a lot of my friends were into that. My brother had brought me to a bunch of Dead shows and Fish shows and early, early Fish shows, and I remember being in the crowd at Fish. And they played like a funk, there was like a really funky moment in one of the songs that was basically like a James, James Brown kind of thing. And the crowd went crazier than they'd gone all night, mm-hmm. you know? And I remember thinking to myself, imagine if they heard Herbie. <laughs> or imagine yeah, yeah. if they heard <laughs> like James Brown, yeah. you know what I mean? So that was kind of like the the moment of truth for us was like sitting in that room and being like, we're improvising, but these grooves are super funky. Yeah. And then, but we're getting really explore, explorative and psychedelic. And I was like, man, we need to bring this to the fish crowd. Yeah. You know, I remember like saying that being like, we need to like play in front of those people. And I remember we would, I would, uh, you know, make the flyers for lettuce and like, you know, print them out and r- ride around b- Boston on my bike. We play house parties and yeah. I'd put them up. And we'd always try to like get the hippies to come see us. That was like yeah, kind of my thing. I'd go up to like the hippies hacky sack and I'd be like, wait till you hear this, man. You know, <laughs> and it's just funny how it evolved and yeah. like funk kind of became part of that world. Totally. You know, eventually. So were you like kind of one of the, were you guys the first ones to do that? Like really bring funk to the jam scene? I don't really know. I mean, I yeah, there was a lot other of lineage, bands, but yeah, I mean, I'd say doing it the way we did it, yeah. like where we were just relentless with it. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. There was it wasn't like we were trying to have like hit songs or anything. Sure. It was just like boom, 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 and then then jam on that for an hour. Yeah, like you know that we we were like, if it makes us feel good, it has to make them feel good. Was the concept? Yeah. I suppose if there was a concept, I don't even sure. know. Sure, but. uh you know, I just remember people like the house parties. People, people loved hiring us, and we would do like frats and house parties. And then when I transferred to Hampshire College in Western Mass, I would go pick the guys up like every other weekend, and I would book a gig out there. Yeah, and we would play generally at the college or the surrounding colleges. And then I started booking us at the local venues. We played this little place called the Iron Horse, and that became kind of like every couple months we'd play there. And it grew and we started recording. And I remember sending a tape to Pete Shapiro at the Wetlands, which I still talk to him about all the time. So I was like, (laughs) you know, dear Pete, you know, this is my band, you know. And uh, it was like the tapes with the, and I I would make the tapes and like dub the tapes and put the the wrapper on them and the whole whole thing. And um, it's so funny. It's so funny to think about all that now. And I remember having the first like burned CD and being like, we're on a CD. And it was such a huge deal for us. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. It's a good question. I think there was probably other people doing it, but I feel like we had a pretty unique take on it. 
when I think back to when I was in college and like high school, and I think about the people I was playing with music with, some of them it was pretty obvious, like, oh yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be really good. You're gonna stick with this forever. Or like, yeah, you're kind of destined. It, it, there's no yeah. doubt in my mind you are going to be successful. And others, probably myself, talent wise, people would have been like, eh, Corey's like fine, yeah. but by God, does he have the drive and the ambition? So he's gonna yeah. it's, he's gonna get there on that, you know, even if even if his talent doesn't catch up. He's going to get there on ambition. Was there something like that in, in that group of, of all those people you were around, even from five-week program? I guess it was a summer program, so people were going there. They must have had some sort of yeah. uh, seriousness about it. When you were at college, when you were in those programs, was there people where it's like, absolutely, this person is going to make it, and they did? And is there anybody who was like, I don't know about that cat? And then all of a sudden, it was like, wow, they there really was, got there it together. Was, man, <laughs> there was a few... Okay, for example, I think I'm maybe like you in terms of the ambition. Like sure. I was like the guy, like, let's book a gig, let's take it. Like those guys, certain guys just wanted to play and loved the feeling of playing. And I did too. But I was like, let's do this and let's try to go for this. I had visions yeah. that I wanted to fulfill. You know, hearing Adam Deitch for the first time blew my mind and it still does. Yeah. Because he was the best drummer, the most natural drummer I've ever met in my life. He's so still, dope. You know, he's so dope. And, and like, but he was like that at 15, 16. Really? 16 years old. And I had friends. I had a lot of drummer friends. And I remember how much better I sounded playing with him. That was yeah. the whole thing. Was that he wasn't flashy. His groove was so deep. And I we had like a funk or soul ensemble. And me, the first day I got there, me and Ryan Zoidis and Deitch were in the same one. And yeah. I was like a huge fan of like Maceo and like that whole thing. And Deitch started playing, do, do, boom, do, do, do. and the way he played that beat, I literally still get goosebumps thinking about it. And then Zoida started playing, sit, beep, dude, and had all that. And I was like, and they were my age. Yeah. And I'm just like, complete. Zoidus was another one, still to this day, yeah. so natural. You know, like there's no, there's it's just all feel. Yeah. You know, so both of them were the type of guys where I was just like, I heard Deitch and I was like, there's no doubt. I'm like, as soon as anyone hears him, yeah, it's done. You know, he's gone. So there's people like that. Um, Jeff Basker was in our band at, mm. for for a good while, and I always thought he was incredibly talented. But what he and I don't know if you're aware of what his what he's done. But he was my my roommate in college, and he was in Lettuce. And what he went on to be the biggest producer of our, or one of the biggest producers and writers of our time. Yeah. You know, and, was like on every massive record for the 20 years. So I'm not saying I wouldn't, but it, what he's done is unbelievable. And I don't know if I would have predicted it, you know. Um, and there's other people that maybe I shouldn't mention that I was like friends with that have gone on to be huge. And you're like, wow, that guy, you know. Um, yes, I, I have those people was, though, as was well. Incredib- <laughs> yeah, so Basker was incredibly talented, but what he did with it, is is yeah. unbelievable. That's you know? cool. So yeah, but there's a lot of people that I mean, everyone that we were around is still has a career in music, some in some capacity. Yeah. One of one our one of the drummers who became kind of like our drum tech at the time ended up as the president of uh, Geffen Records wow. and the VP at Interscope, and now has his own company. And uh, you know, it's just funny how where people have gone and the things they've done and. 
you know, Pete Shapiro, you know, he was like just like a homie. Like he owned the wetlands, but that was, you know, he's yeah. not much older than me. And what he's done is unbelievable. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I mean, you've done so much as well. I, I have a question about versatility and because, you know, we're guitar podcast. You have such a a wide range of genres that you play. I mean, you've produced even everybody from Nora Jones, 50 Cent, Marcus King, newer one that maybe some of the older cats don't know about yet. Um, you've worked with so many bands. You've done so many things. I've seen you as a music director on so many different things. As far as playing the guitar, what what does it take to really absorb and learn different genres? For those that don't know, I think there's a lot of people that look at players like yourself, myself, uh, other other guitar players that do like Littieri, people that are in the pop world, R&B, jazz, blues, yeah. funk, all these different things. For you, I'm curious what you think it takes to be able to absorb and really play with authenticity across genres? That's a really great question. I think it starts for me with being a fan, you know, like mm. I have to really love the genre or the song even yeah. that, that we're, that I'm learning or working on. And that pushes that drive, you know, to be like, Oh, I really want to do this justice. Cause I just love it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, it starts there. And then I think from there, it's like experimentation, you know, which is kind of f fed by the drive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you got to tinker. Um, and for me, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that. I, I, I kind of like, if as far as getting like technical with it, it mostly comes from my hands, you know, of like figuring out like, how did this person get that sound? I'll usually like zone in on a person sure. <laughs> or a thing. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like if we're like, like, for example, like the MD thing, if I'm checking out like a Michael McDonald, I think we did the, one of the Michael McDonald yeah. things together or, and you know, I'll like check that out. I'll figure out what that person was doing. And then I'll kind of allow myself to inject my vibe to it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So initially it's like, okay, learn the part. You know, if you're doing an earth, wind and fire song, you got to learn that part, man. Like yeah. Al McKay was a genius of guitar parts. I'm not saying you have to stick to exactly what he did, but I think it's important to, you know, really kind of learn, learn the stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it doesn't mean that you're not great because you're learning someone else's thing. Totally. You know, I think yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it just, you have to do that. And then from there in injecting your own thing is something you experiment with. How can you, you know, keep the, the vibe of the original thing, but add your thing to it. But yeah, again, it comes down to like, I'm such a fan of music of all types of music, um, you know, from all genres. So it's like, for me, it's so, it's really fun to be able to jump into so many different worlds, whether it's like getting like a cool, like hip hop kind of loop happening um, where the, it's all based on feel and tone. And then, you know, other times try, like holding down a really complex rhythm or, or whatever it is, I just kind of love doing it all. And it, it's like once, once that desire is there, the tinkering can go on forever. It's kind of like for me, just when to turn it off to be like, okay, now we're there. Like, don't keep going into like the world of messing with tones for too long. Yeah. Like, once you're there, just like understand that we're there now move on to the next thing, you know? Yeah. How do you practice your time feel? 
You know, I I don't really like sit there with a metronome or anything. I think like, I don't know. I, I don't really have a specific method. Sure. I actually would love to ask you that question because <laughs> your time is so impeccable. Uh, like, I'm, you know, I don't know if, uh, I mean, sometimes I play with loops and stuff. I mean, sure. I guess in, I'm creating so much in my studio that I think that becomes my my practice yeah, because I'm like totally. in here making beats, making loops, and I'm forced to even when I'm just finding a part, um, I'm kind of that is my version of practicing. Yeah, I think back in the day I used to use a looper. You know, I had that jam. I had one of the first like jam man yeah. rack things, and I used to like try to get my loops like right on point, and I would also use it. Um, to put drums into, like I had a lot of old drum breaks that I would get on CDs or whatever. Yeah. And obviously now that's a whole new thing. I like playing to drums. Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, playing with a drummer, but drum loops more so than like a metronome. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you don't mind me flipping it, I'd like to ask <laughs> you what you do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm curious because everybody's got their method, but your your time is great, yeah. and I think so much of it is because. Uh, like the stuff that you're talking about, you it really genuinely enjoy and dive deep into the players and the parts. And I think the depth that you dive is in a similar way that I do it, where it's like, okay, I'm going to learn the part, but it's not just learn the notes and rhythms. It's like, where are they placing it? What's the energy mm. of the part? And so much of the way that I practice time, it's about like, what's the energy of the time? So there is a way to practice time very metronomic and exact and just like living on the grid. Then there's like really pushing it forward and giving an angsty feel to the energy. Mm. Like, I'm like, ah, it's like, it's, it's mo- there's no way to slow this thing down. It's like a freight train that kind of can't like, even if something pulls in front of it, it's just going to kind of get plowed over. And then there's like the energy of, okay, we're in time, but it's very relaxed and it can feel like, the train is, there's, I don't know, there, there's something on the tracks that's kind of slowing us down. But I think a lot of the way that I practice time, I do love to practice along with drum set metronomes or drum yeah. drum stuff. But sometimes yeah. it, it's really about the difference between executing the time and then the mental awareness of, am I trying to execute exactly on the grid? Am I trying to lean this forward to give it a certain type of momentum? Or am I trying to relax this and then try to pay attention to, you know, like like genres or players that you're talking about or, or different songs? Does this sort of thing generally lean forward? Does it sit metronomic? Does it lean back? You know, if you're right. if you're playing D'Angelo tunes, it's gonna feel a lot different than if you're playing Ohio players tunes, you know, or cameo or right. something. You know, like they're the time feels are just much different. The Prince thing is very different than the Philly thing, you know, it's, yeah, uh, for sure. So I, that's, that's part of the way that I practice is, is that, that mental awareness of, of like, here is where everybody else is placing it or where this stylistically might feel appropriate. And then it's my job to execute on that side of it or whatever. Right. That was very well, well explained. I mean, I think for me, like even just listening to how you describe it, I think, there's so much to learn from every part. You know what I mean? I remember yeah. hearing D'Angelo and just my mind was blown, you know, and yeah. being like, oh man, you can sit that far back, you know, <laughs> and you can, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it feels that good, but not everyone can do it. It's like, and also, you know, one of the things, you know, from playing with the meters guys a lot, 
um, it's the push and pull of the different players. They're not all necessarily sitting in the same place. Like Zigaboo is pulling yeah. back. George is pushing forward and it meets in this beautiful place. You yes. Know, that's kind of unlike any other combination. And it's funny, you mentioned um, like where they place it and there's kind of like rhythmically where they place it. But I was also thinking about like on the guitar, the same notes can be played differently. Mm. Like I remember the first time I kind of learned Just Kiss My Baby kind of like on the fly. Like we we just went into it in a jam and I was with the, I was with Ivan Neville and George and Tony Hall and I'm playing it to get dorky for a second. I'm playing like, between like the seventh fret and the third fret, you know? And Tony Hall comes running on stage, grabs my hand and like pulls it up to the like sharp nine based on the A string on like (laughs) the 10th fret. He's like, that ain't the grip, grass, you know? And I remember, but, and then I started playing it there and I was like, that's the song. Yeah, Like it's that different. It's the same notes. But if you play it down here, sounds totally whack (laughs) but i'll never forget that moment i was like oh man i'm playing with if i'm playing with these guys i gotta know what the hell i'm doing yeah that's great i mean yeah so much of the details i mean that's that's part of the game you know like the that yeah step in you know that extra two percent that you know you might not have been aware of before but then once you get the awareness of it you kind of can't Get, you can't be unaware of it anymore. It's like, you know, like I, it's the same thing. Like when I, uh, it, when I'm working in a studio and somebody's like, oh, let's just edit this one part of the drums. It's like, they'll edit one section of the drums. It's all of a sudden perfectly on the grid and the rest of it's not. And the rest of the band is not. And then it's like, well, right. it's, it's like you just pressure washed one corner of the wall. And now like the rest of the wall looks terrible because the one corner looks super clean or something. It's like, what are you? (laughs) But it's the awareness of that now where I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess either we got to do it all or you just leave it and let it, let the push pull be what makes it the thing. Like like you're talking about with Zig and George, it's like, you don't want to play the meters tunes where everybody's feeling everything metronomic. It's inappropriate, you know, like doesn't, oh, inappropriate, I guess it's subjective, but it's like, it's not as authentic. Like part of what made their groove so interesting is that feel. Right. And you know, it's interesting because being in a studio and producing and all that stuff, it's like you tend to want to make it too perfect, you know? Sure. And I, I wonder if the meters now could happen, you know, because the part of that that <laughs> sloppiness is what's so great. Yeah. You know, and and also how it's recorded. I mean, no one would ever record uh, it, like these days where you can, like the balance, if you turn the balance to the left side, it's just drums. Yeah. You know, on that one, I think it's on the Luca Pi Pi record. You go to the right, it's guitar and bass. And it's like, no one would record that way now, but that's the beauty of those records. The drums sound so cool. Yeah. You know? And, but not in a processed way at all. Um, but that was one of the things, like going back to the album we just made, you know, with Stanton and, and, and Eric, it was like part of the beauty of it was like, we didn't want to touch it after. Yeah. And we actually tried. We like, there was a couple, oh, that was a great take, <laughs> but that last fill, let's just punch. And we tried doing that. And like you said, it, the wall made the rest of the wall messed yeah. up. But it was like, okay, we're going to have to just grit our teeth and like, 
understand that like yeah. this record isn't perfect and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. And what happened was we kind of just turned up the room. You know what I mean? Sure. We were in this beautiful room. We're like, you know what? Rather than nitpick, let's just make the room part of this record. You yeah. know, like like make those mics, like make it feel like you're in this room with us, you know? And that, that were, there was something beautiful about that because I feel like a lot of the records I have made in recent times did have a lot of editing and let me get this guitar part right or let me, you know, and it, there was so much kind of impromptu in this and we kept it all, yeah. you know? And there's a lot of it that like I hear and I'm like, oh, I'm playing a bad note there or maybe like I'm a little ahead there, but... I think that I need more. You know, it's funny, like even just in the pandemic, I started listening to a lot of like older, like jazz records and stuff. Like, and I think that influenced that, like listening to the old, like Van Gelder, like Blue Note records. Yeah. Just wanting to hear humanity, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) in, in record and not, and I love producing stuff that's perfect on the, in like with, that is very edited, but I don't know, I guess in recent times I've been yearning for that kind of that sound of like imperfection. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed very strongly in what you do musically and just the the things that you've been a part of and the things that you choose to put your energy into, like you're talking about stuff that can be very well produced and like straight down the middle, poppy, straight down the middle, nice and edited and clean, stuff that's got some grit to it, got some, some character to it that like you allow yourself that. But the other thing is, I've seen you as a part of so many different scenes and so many different genres with an awareness of them. And where I want to go with this is you have seen, like like you said, you grew up listening to the dead and fish and you have been part of the jam scene. But I feel like a lot of people and a lot of musicians kind of define themselves by that. And that's that's okay. That's not a bad thing at all. It's like, I am a jam band musician or whatever. You know, some people it's like, that. Yeah, that is yeah. it. That's all they listen to. That's all they care about. That's the only scene they want to be a part of. That's totally fine. It's a wonderful scene, supportive scene. There's so much history. There's so much fun to be had. There's a lot of festivals and shows and community, most importantly. But I've seen you be a part of that and also so many other things, like, uh, you know, in the pop, in the R&B, the funk, the jazz world, all these different things that are not just in the jam scene. And when I see people that are in scenes that are not part of the jam thing, sometimes they're like, what is going on there? I don't get it. And, right. and sometimes the jam people right. think the same thing about like, oh, I don't know, pop music? Like, really? You know, and it's interesting to, as as somebody also who's kind of in and out and just around a lot of those things. And um, I'm curious, when people ask you, maybe more particularly with Fish or the Dead or maybe the jam scene in general, some people are just like, I don't get it. Explain it. Like, what? what's the deal? As somebody who's been around all of that and who also probably knows their world, the the person who's asking you, how do you normally answer that question? Well, that's a good question. I think it's different now than it used to be in terms of how I'd answer that question. In what way? Because when, well, okay, when Soul Live came out, we didn't really, like, we weren't going after the jam scene. You know what I mean? We were trying to be what we were. Sure. But it, the easiest gigs to book off the out the gate were those gigs, and the festivals wanted us, and they knew a little bit about me and a little bit about them. 
And it just kind of grew in that scene. I mean, we were on Blue Note Records. It was like, you know, after a year or so of touring Mm -hmm. and we were like doing, I mean, nothing we did musically had anything to do with Jambi. I mean, the first, second album we did, we had remixes with Talib Kweli on it and High Tech. And we weren't collaborating with any jam bands. We didn't sound like a jam band. We ran from it. You know, like if anyone mentioned it in an interview, we like went, not, well, I should say that I was the only one with any connection to it. Sure. Like they would, you know, Alan and Neil had no idea about Fish, never seen Fish, never seen The Grateful Dead, never heard, couldn't name a song. And we kind of were ashamed of that word. I'm going to be real with you. Sure, um, yeah. And, but as the whole thing evolved, and it really became apparent how great the fans in that scene are. Yeah, the community. You know? And so the first turn for me was like, wow, these are the greatest fans on, on the planet. They want us to jam for 20 minutes. Yeah. They want us to explore. They And the big thing, the thing that we embraced was changing our set all the time. Yeah. Um, which was a very Grateful Dead thing to do. Not doing anything the same, because that was more fun for us. Yeah. And we started realizing this this fan base embraces exactly what we want to do. Yeah. You know? And if I'd come out with a different project, Lettuce, they loved it. They embraced it. They supported it. Yeah. And I think what happened was, as like a, sidebar to that, I started appreciating the music more. Yeah. You know, like, and I started being like, okay, let's not be a jazz snob here or whatever, you know, even though I'm not necessarily jazz, but, you know, don't be a snob about music. Mm -hmm. Like, understand why there's a reason behind the devotion that these fans have for this music. Yeah. And it's because these musicians are putting it on the line and really, like, going for it. Like I, and then, so years and years later, I got the call to play with Phil Lesh mm-hmm. in the Phil Lesh and friends, which I've done a lot for the past 10 years or so. And learning that music and then being a part of that and playing it for those people has been such an incredible experience. I mean, those, those fans know every word and every turn to the music. And when we change it and flip it and even mess it up, they get excited. Yeah. You know, they actually love when we make mistakes <laughs> and we change it. As long as it's all about what we do in the moment where we mess it up. Yeah. Like, how do we turn that into something cool? And um, it started over time. I've embraced it more and more and more. And I don't let it necessarily influence influence my music unless I want it to. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, my, but it was funny because my last record always. You know, if I, I've, you know, I kind of had some time away from it and I, it came on, my son like, like, likes to listen to it. And so my son's always like, put on the, de- put on the mommy's, because my, my, my wife's on the album, yeah, the cover, album cover, pregnant. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so he, he's like, put on the mommy album. So I put that on and I was like, man, I sound like, I, I sound like I've been listening to the dead <laughs> on that record, <laughs> even though like it sounds more like D'Angelo and more like Earth, Wind and Fire or whatever, but you can hear and I like, but it took me a year or two of it being out to understand, like, wow, I've been in the dead for ten years, like, been playing. Like, I can hear that in there, yeah, but not in necessarily the ways that people would think. But like, the looseness of the guitar playing and like the way you know, I mean, there's still Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan in there, and there's still Grant Green in there, but there's Jerry Garcia in there, whether I like it or not, you know, yeah. And like twenty years ago, I never would have said that, really, you know. Um, 
Well, I don't think so. You know, I was I was kind of I, I was a closet jam bander in sure. the beginning of Soul Live because it was way cooler to not be. You know, yeah. And um, I think over time I've embraced it, and also I did have it in my early days, like my early days of picking up the guitar. I was I'd been to Dead shows. I was a fan of the Dead. When I became a, a musician, it just was it just was so not cool to like that. So I was you know I kind of and uh, but it came full circle. Yeah, you know, and there's so much nostalgia to it that I wonder if I wasn't into it as a younger person if I'd like it now because it's not mm. it's almost not music. I don't know if that sounds weird to say, but you know, like when my wife when I because I listen to a lot of it when I'm about to go on to do the Phil Esch dates. Yeah. Um, because what happens is we do a stretch of five or six shows and there's no repeats. Yeah. So I can't rehearse for it. There's too many songs. So I just put on the dead for like a week before. Yeah. And my wife is in the beginning. It's like, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> how can you go from Stevie wonder to this, you know? And I'm like, well, you can't think about it being like super tight all the time. It's not about that. It's about the mood the songs, the lyrics, the version of the song, like it's all these elements, the nostalgia that it brings. Sure. You know? So I kind of like explained that to her. And then over the last couple of years, she likes it now. Yeah. You know, and she puts it on and like, I'm like, I came home once. I was like, you listen to dead. And she's like, yeah, it just makes me feel her way. You know? And um, it's different than other music for some reason for me. Maybe yeah. it's like the nostalgia. Um, but it's not like I listen to go, oh man, listen to how killing that hi-hat is. You know, it's like, I, I have to like turn off the musical. I don't I, side of me and just like, listen. Yeah. Know? So I don't know if that made any sense. Totally. Well, what's interesting <laughs> but, also is, is the types of music that, that the fan bases celebrate exploration, jam, jazz, blues. Um, you know, there's different levels of, of like being along for the ride. Like, I want you to take me for a ride and I want you to honor the tradition. Like, you know, some people, some jazz fans would be like, this doesn't sound anything like blah, blah, blah. Or like, you're not playing like this, 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 or this isn't honoring this. So they might hate on something, you know, even if it's a good version of the thing that they're doing. Yeah. I think in general, what I've noticed with a lot of the jam fans too, even with wanting the exploration, like you're saying, which is amazing. I, that's why I love doing those kind of festivals. It's different. You can just yeah. open up and it's like, oh, I've, I've been given permission to have all this freedom. And they want that. Yeah. And they want me to give my best version of it. They don't, I, I think what's interesting is you don't have to honor. I mean, of course, there's a respect for things that have come before and, and things that, 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 you know, people know you for, they want to see you do some of your thing, obviously, uh, to have at least that expectation. But to be able to just yeah. do a good version of the thing, I think that's what's really fun is that people are just, I want to have a great experience in this moment that's going to feel like it's just now and it's only ever yeah. happening now. And you know what else would be also nice is if there's a possibility that that bootleg would show up later that I could loosely relive that. You know, it's like, that's also right. kind of part of the thing, which is fun. And also sometimes drives me nuts. Where I'm like, man, I really went for it. And about three quarters of it was amazing. But one quarter of it, I never want to hear again. <laughs> oh, man. I, I know that. I know that. I know that feeling. But yeah, you know, I think it's been so cool being a part of specifically the Phil and Friends thing. Because 
when I come when I first came into it, I was like, okay, do I have to do the Jerry thing here and this thing there and the with it? And and he just really wanted me to explore the music, sure. you know, and like do whatever I felt was appropriate. Yeah. And I could feel it get better, you yeah. know, but it took me honestly a long time to like own it in a certain way because also the the style of improvisation that they do isn't like, okay, you take a solo now and when you're done, he takes a solo and then when then he takes a solo, it's very much like a, a group improv thing, which when he told me, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, no problem. We'll weave in and out, you know, it's fine. Yeah. And I remember it was like me and Warren Haynes in, this, on that, in that first band and I could not figure out how to do that. I could really? not... You know, and, and I, I just, I, I, you know, I was doing it with my hands, but I couldn't like really feel it. Mm. I was like, okay, now four bar. I kept being like four bars of me, four bars of you. But I couldn't, for some reason, just play on top of him. It felt so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, but then over time I figured out like, okay, it's comfortable. You can do that. And you can improvise as a, as a group where it's not like a focus on me per se. Um, but it, it requires a lot of, of listening and a lot of trust yeah. in your own ability, but also everyone else's to like move together. But it took me a really long time to kind of like, it wasn't just like, oh, second, third gig, I had it figured out. It was like, you know, oh, it took a while for me to understand it. And it was funny because some of the songs, you know, because he had me singing a lot too, which at first was nerve wracking because there was so many lyrics and so many songs. But it actually really helped me as a singer because it was like, okay, now I can figure out these different zones. Because when I'm writing songs for myself, I generally was keeping it really safe in this like yeah. little zone of like, I know I'm comfortable here. Um, so it helped me figure out like where I could go. And, you know, it kind of helped me just get less nervous in general because like if I messed something up royally, which I did a few times, and I would look back at Phil, and the biggest grins of the night was always when I messed something up really bad. Huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, whenever I would nail something, I'd look at him, and he'd be, like, just bopping along. Yeah. But, like, if I'd mess something up, he'd laugh at He'd laugh at me and smile and be like, <laughs> ooh, that was cool. You know, that was different. You know? Um, so, you know, it, it was just good for me on so many levels. And, you know, like you said, the appreciation that those, I mean, the fan, the, the fans of in that scene, you, you could, you can't get better yeah. fans. They just want you to explore, you know, the more fun we have, the more fun they have. You've probably done thousands upon thousands of gigs. Is there anything about playing live that scares you now? You know, generally, if I'm not as prepared as I want to be, yeah, which is exactly. kind of like the same with everybody, yeah, you yeah. know, um, and like, for example, like Jazz Fest is coming up and it's kind of like you do a lot of gig. I do a lot of gigs during Jazz Fest that have no rehearsal. Yeah. And, you know, you get on stage on some of those gigs and you're like, uh oh, here we go. Like, how are we going to, are we going to get through this? Okay. And I don't, you know, I don't really get that nervous. You know, I will say that it's more been like, like recently, um, since since the pandemic, I more I get anxious about traveling and stuff like that. It's more the things that surround the music, yeah. that make that make me uncomfortable. You know, I guess like having that much time at home in my studio and with my family, kind of like made me a little more wary of going just like traveling and doing things in general. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are feeling that. 
But, um, you know, jumping back into touring wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. Yeah. You know? And it's a $120 Uber from Pasadena to LAX. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> exactly. No, it used to be a lot easier. I used to live like 10 minutes from LaGuardia. So like now I, now I have to fly. And I do so many of my gigs are on the East Coast too. So I yeah. do spend a lot of time traveling when I do a gig right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, I'm going to be at Jazz Fest. We should hang. Let's jam. Let's do it, man. Yeah, man. I've been wanting to see your band. I ran in, I've run into some of your guys on this tour. Yeah. Uh, your keyboard player. We were in Minneapolis. So you were, I think you were out yeah, of town. Yeah, I know. I was gone. Um, I was bummed. I missed you. But I want to see the the current band. I still haven't really seen your newest, your newest version with Sonny T, man. Dude, it's Woo! fun right now. It's that killing. Dude. It's killing. Yeah. And I know you were out with Victor recently. Yeah, it was fun. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, your band is just on fire, man. It's fun. So good. I, I watch all the clips. <laughs> thanks, dude. Well, Crash, thanks so much for hanging with us, man. We'll, I'll, I'll see you in a couple weeks at Jazz Fest. Well, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, man. Thanks Appreciate for being it. with us. Yeah, I'll see you in a couple Absolutely. weeks in New Orleans. Sounds good. There you have it. Kraz. I just hung with Kraz last week at Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Watched him play. He was doing a thing at the Joy Theater. It was so good. It was so good. I had a blast. I had a blast. And hey, <laughs> I'm going to apologize right now to anybody who saw me and my crew after that gig outside the theater because I got a new pedal board in a big old Pelican case because my production manager's like, you need a professional case. So you know what we were doing that night? This is the stupidest thing. We were testing the durability of my new Pelican. We we're riding it like a surfboard. We're kicking it. We're throwing it. And guess what? My pedal board still worked afterwards. It was, it was funny, I guess. We'll, we'll say that. We were having a good time. It was just, we were just dicking around, you know. I got, I'm trying out different pedals, different pedal boards, testing the durability of things, because you got to do that. You got to put things through the test. You got you to be vigorous about your testing. And that's what we were doing. And guess what? The Pelican case worked. My production manager might have been right. You know, instead of just throwing my pedal board in my suitcase, having a professional case, guess what? It works. Who would have thought? Hey, thanks for hanging with us this season. I'm so stoked about how everything's been going with this podcast. I can't say it enough. I truly appreciate you listening. It really means a lot. So thanks a lot. We'll see you next season. Peace. Peace.